0: I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to pick up where we left off last time uh, there. I'd love to pray for a second. Is that okay? I know we've been kind of praying today, but this is church, so you know, you know what you're getting when you sign up for it. So uh, let's pray together and invite the Holy Spirit again just to meet and minister to us. Jesus, we're so grateful and thankful that um, even as we're in this space together, you are with us. For our friends at home who are sitting on couches this morning or still in bed, Father, you are with them. And I just pray, Spirit, that you would come now and capture our full attention. I pray, Father, that every part of our being now would just move into your rhythm, into your leadership. Father, that we would be able to receive all that you have for us today. So we again pray, come Holy Spirit. Not as religious rhetoric, but as a petition and a plea for you to come and meet with us. And so we do that now this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, um, you may not know this about me, and it might be a huge surprise to a lot of you, but I was, for quite a few years, a theater kid. Uh, I started acting classes in fifth grade, and then proceeded to take that further upon entering into middle school. My mom owned part of a conservatory of performing arts, and my sister and I were there every day after school doing some kind of training in vocal performance, or tap, or jazz, ballet, acting, you name it, we were doing it. And the goal was Broadway, duh. Uh, But the journey to get there would be long, as it still is. Uh, Now, the first stop on this journey for me was, and for my sister, was a local repertoire theater that was in our town, Uh, and it was the summer of my eighth grade year, and my sister and I both auditioned for it. Now, this was a really good theater, um, and so, and it would really be our first kind of paid theater experience, so we spent hours prepping for that audition. Now, if you're familiar at all with this kind of world, you know it's not generally as easy as you would imagine. You know, you sit in front of a panel of about five or six people, the choreographer of the show, the director of the show, the producer, the music director, and a few others, and you share a prepared monologue, then a short musical number, and then the next step is a dance number that you're taught on the spot and then performed. Long story short, my sister and I were both cast in three summers that show, thats uh, three shows that summer, and I'm um, kind of a big deal, and you didn't even know it. Now, the first show we were cast in uh, is a super famous Italian opera called La Boheme. Uh, the next uh, was a newer show called Children of Eden. That's right with where I'm at now. And the last uh, was the ever-famous Hello, Dolly. And that's not a bad run for your first kind of time out there in professional theater. Now, once we got hired, we were given our scripts and scores, and we began rehearsal almost immediately. Um, Then we went to our fittings, and we were sized and fitted for all the varying shows, wigs, corsets, bustles, the whole bit. And at that point, for at least me, momentum was really building. You know, my sister and I had worked for years to get into this kind of gig, and we were just young teenagers, and now we were on the big stage taking one more step towards that dream of Broadway. And I think think it's fair to say we were feeling pretty good, you know, like really good. We were picked over lots of other really talented people, and that's an an ego boost for sure, and something that made us feel pretty special. But then we were told our casting Now, we had a general idea, but there are some specifics you don't know until production begins. So in La Boheme, we were cast as wealthy street kids, obviously. In Children of Eden, we were some kind of descendants of Adam and Eve in the main cast. Easy. And then in Hello, Dolly, we were told that we were some kind of version of the frolicking towns, ladies. Wonderful. Uh, But that we were also the horse. That's right. We were the horse. The horse, in fact, that pulled Dolly's carriage in the opening scene. Bent over, one of us in the front, the other in the back. That was us. The glory of theater. And suddenly, in a moment, our feeling of exceptionalism fleeted. And we were reminded that our success was not going to be all that we thought it was. Our desire to be on stage performing while it was happening certainly wasn't everything we thought it would be. And though we were young, we were motivated by our dreams of success. Which is not bad per se, but it's also not perfect. Every one of us has within our hearts and our minds a desire to be successful, to be special, to be seen as valuable, while at the same time being valued for your gifts. Whether that be in the arena of performance arts, or leadership, or church leadership, or engineering, or design. The problem is, as I learned early on, success isn't always what we think it's going to be. And the accolades that follow are often much less different and less fulfilling than we had hoped. Today, we're going to take a look at at this concept really through the lens and the life of the kingdom. Now, you'll remember that when we last left off in our text, the disciples had just heard this parable about the workers in the field. In this story, Jesus disrupts their view of success in the kingdom, and he states over and over again for a million times that the first would be last and that the last would be first, that success in terms of the kingdom would not be as the world measured it. In fact, it would often look very contrary to what one would anticipate or even hope for in terms of ambition and success. So we pick up on the heels of these words. So with that, would you look down with me at verse 17? I'm going to read the whole text, so I think that'll be helpful, and then I'm going to talk a bit about it. We'll walk through it together. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, And flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine might sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus called them together and said, All right, well, our text opens up, and we find Jesus and the disciples on their way to Jerusalem. Now, historically, we know that they were making their pilgrimage there because it was the annual feast of Passover, and they would be going to the holy city to celebrate. Now, the pilgrimage was something that many of the Jews would take during Passover, which means that uh, the road that they were on would be busy. It would be filled with lots of families and animals and young children. Hence why we read that Jesus takes the 12 aside. Now when he does this, he says an odd thing, or at least so it seems. He tells his disciples very, very directly that on this trip to Jerusalem, he would be handed over to the state. He would be crucified and raised on the third day. Can you imagine him saying this? He's looking them straight in the face and saying, look, we're headed to Jerusalem. This is it. We're going to it. I'm going to the state. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die and raised to new life. Now, just to give more context about this, I want to point out that this isn't the first time that Jesus said this to his disciples. In fact, this is the third and final time in the book of Matthew that he clearly states what's about to happen. Some scholars note that because Jesus often spoke in parables, the disciples may have thought his words about death and resurrection were hyperbolic in nature that they weren't astute enough to answer it or understand it. But either way, we see, even from an initial lack of response, that what he was saying is a bit lost on them, which makes the next experience in our text that much more interesting, because up walks Mama Zebedee. So Jesus says to the crowd, to his disciples, I'm going to die, and Mom comes in. Some of you have one of those, and she does that. Now, this is the mother of James and John, if you're wondering who the sons of Zebedee are. And we see that she comes in, you know, scooches her way, I imagine, between the disciples, kneels down, showing that she does have a high view of Jesus, and even that she could be acknowledging his deity. Now, this is just speculation, but I have to wonder if she overheard him talking about the events to come and assumed that they were talking about his kingdom that was starting, or maybe even setting up kingdom in Jerusalem, and maybe that was her motivation for this conversation. Either way, she goes on to ask Jesus in this very weird moment if both of her sons could sit at right at his right and left hand. These are positions of authority and influence, making this request for glory immediately after Jesus has spoken of the humiliation of the kingdom peculiarly inopportune at best. Now, Jesus responds with a gracious correction. He says, you don't don't know what you're asking, a phrase that should draw our minds back to verse 18, where he's talking about going to die. And then he asks them, can you drink this cup? And they answer, we can. A bold and somewhat naive response, considering that the cup here historically was an expression of suffering and the results of others' sin. And we read on to see that Jesus says that they will indeed drink the, cl- the cup, implying that they would follow in his example in the days ahead. In fact, many scholars note that back in verse 18, when Jesus said, we are going to Jerusalem, this was symbolic language for them, implying that they would all be on this kind of journey. And we know from history that that's true, at least to some degree, that John was... Uh, that James was one of the first apostolic martyrs right after the time of Jesus. And we also know that John, too, was exiled to the island of Patmos for his work in the kingdom. So there would be this kind of death that they would live, just as Jesus predicted. Now, Jesus goes on and he says that to sit at his right or to his left was not for him to decide. It wouldn't be based on honor or favoritism or even merit, but that it was to be decided by the Father. And as Tim Mackey points out, hermeneutically, this moment is meant to point us ahead in our text to the two criminals beside Jesus at the cross who would be raised to his right and his left side as he was raised to his enthronement in Jerusalem, again, emphasizing what the kingdom was all about. Now, finally, our text ends with the disciples, these other ones, overhearing what had happened and they were upset. Still not getting the thrust of Jesus' teaching here. So he gathers them all to himself and again states that his kingdom would not be like the world's. That his metrics of the world for ambition would not serve them. That the hierarchy they were after existed in, in his kingdom, but not in the way that they would imagine it. That to be the greatest, they would become servants. He finally says that he... Their model for influence and leadership and power came to serve, not to be served. To give his life as a ransom for many. I'll more on all of this in a moment. Now, what I think Jesus is calling out here is what I'm calling justification by achievement or a Christianity of glory. This is a faith that overemphasizes the benefits of the kingdom while deemphasizing the work or the cost of it. It is one that promises and expects, even politely and subtly demands accolades, authority, and means of influence because of one's faithfulness. Now certainly there is human concern and desire people have with status and even importance and ambition. But it seems to me that in this text those fundamental instincts at many levels must be unlearned and even relearned by those of us who belong to the kingdom. How it'd be easy for me to stand up here and to demonize success this morning and even ambition, to make this a conversation of like, fix it, do this, don't do that. But Jesus in this text isn't doing anything of the sort. In fact, he's brilliantly addressing the heart of the issue, not just for Mama Zebedee and the disciples, but for us as well. In this text, we have two standout ideas, two concepts that Jesus is, despite what it may seem, not divorcing from the other. Those are ambition and servanthood. So let's look at each. When it comes to ambition, it's all over this text. From James and John's open bid for leadership by asking to sit at Jesus' right hand to the indignant response of the disciples, it's all over the place. In fact, it's not just in this particular passage, but really in the last chapter or two that we see ambition rearing its head more and more as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem and his imminent death, which should make you wonder why. The disciples are undoubtedly anticipating a great moment in Jerusalem, a moment where they would be both exonerated for their claims that he is in fact the Messiah and elevated to ruling positions in his kingdom. Their idea of his rule was still set against the backdrop and power structure of the world, so their anticipation for their place in it only grew. And that in and of itself is not bad, but that's the point. Jesus was not trying to kill the aspirations of the disciples. Rather, he was condemning the means for achieving it, one over the other. Honor and glory at the expense of someone else or for the sake of my own comfort or my own privilege. Jesus was correcting the disciples' understanding of his kingdom, not by shaming them for their desire, but by calling out what was misplaced in it. In the kingdom and from this text, we very clearly see that ambition for the sake of personal gain will not only hijack one's ability to see what is before them, but it will also destroy one's ability to truly be great, to truly influence those around them ambition and the kingdom is flipped on its head and where it would normally be about personal gain it now becomes about the glory of the other where one would normally set their sights on status and influence and notoriety they would now set it towards servanthood towards living as those who have no rights existing solely for others this jesus says was the way to true greatness but it wasn't the only way In fact, it was only the beginning. At the heart of our text, we find a call to servanthood, a word you are undoubtedly familiar with, and in the Christian context, probably very comfortable with. Servanthood, at least as much much of us, as most of us, man, I'm, let me do this. Mm -hmm. I usually do that before. That's an acting tip. Uh, Servanthood, at least as most most of us know it, is marked by taking someone's trash to the trash bin at the lunch table, so polite, or sweeping up after an event. But servanthood, as Jesus defines it here, moves beyond behaviors to a way of life, and one that is non-negotiable for the apprentice of Jesus. The call to be a servant begins in verse 26, where we read that Jesus says, to be great is to be a servant of others. Servant here implies that you are one who is willing and committed to do the menial and faithful tasks over and over again. This is and would have been culturally a picture of putting oneself at the disposal of others. Now He goes on to say that that other position we take is that of a slave, which was as shocking to hear then as it is now. It's important to note that slave and servant here can be interchangeable in the text, making this literary note the emphasizing point that Jesus was after. So, what does it mean to be a slave? Scholar John Meyer says that a slave here is defined as one who has no rights or existence of his own and solely exists for others. The image here that Jesus was painting for us was one of ultimate surrender and deference. It's the complete picture of giving up all of our rights for the good and the benefits of others. And it would be one thing if Jesus said all of this without any personal context, but he didn't. As we see in our text, Jesus is calling his disciples to do what he himself is about to do. And not just at a domestic kind of life-on-life level, but at a cosmic one as well. Jesus was about to put himself completely at the disposal of others, to give his life as a ransom, or in the Greek, a lutron, to give himself as payment for the one who is needing rescue. This ransom would be an act of liberation, and that was precisely the point. Servanthood, as he was displaying it and teaching it, was about submission of self first to God, then to others, for the purpose of others' liberation. There's purpose in our servanthood. And this was flipping everything on its head. The call to servanthood here moves beyond the lines of religious expectation as we know it to thresholds of salvation if we will allow it. Greatness now defined by people experiencing the kingdom of God, experiencing salvation, experiencing God's presence here on earth earth through our sacrifice and our servant this is what servanthood is all about that others would encounter the glory and the goodness of God this is true greatness in the kingdom now often for those of us in the church there's a real disconnect between our understanding of ambition and holy ambition our understanding of servanthood and sacrifice we want to be great but often we are unwilling to see that greatness will not mean something different for us than it did for our rabbi we are kept from true servanthood and great the greatness it really does bring because we fear and even believe at some level that if we become a true servant of all, dying completely to ourselves, we may not have all that we need. That God may forget about our best, our desires, our hopes, our dreams. But this is the power in what Jesus is speaking here As we see him fully give himself to others, it is done so on the basis that his father will fully give himself to him. Servants are not without care. As so often believed, they are in fact the most cared for insecure oftentimes. Yes, their life is dependent upon their master, but if their master is the ruler of the universe, perfect in all his ways, fair and just and loving, then you can be sure that he will be faithful, not just in preserving those he loves, but in blessing them as well. This is the paradigm we have to grasp if we're going to wrap our heads around what Jesus is after here in this text. As he so often does, Jesus is challenging the story most of us believe. There are two stories here being told in this text. The first is that we have, at some or many levels, need to care for ourselves. We have to pull ourselves up, put ourselves out there, reach for and climb to the top, throw elbows if you have to. That's the American way. This is the story of success and greatness according to the world, do the most. And it's hard to shake that. It really is. But the second story we see here is the way of the kingdom or of servanthood, including death and enemy love and sacrifice and dependence. Not easy, not without loss and complexities, but also not without reward. The reality is the story you live under, the story you believe about servanthood will be the story that you live out. The question this morning is, what will you choose to do with what you know? What will you choose to do with these belief systems that you carry, whether they're age old or brand new? Whether they're from some weird old church experience you had or some new one that was also weird, what will you choose to do with it? It's clear from our text that if you choose success and greatness in terms of the world, that your motivation will be ambition that your expectation will be position and that you will feel entitled to some sort of benefits. If servanthood is the choice that you make, then your motivation will be love. The expectation here is that you would become a servant and you will be entitled to, get ready for it, death. Good morning. What a blessing. Now listen, this looks neat and orderly. It's not that way in the kingdom of God. It's messy for those of us who are sorting out and sussing this out as we try to serve Jesus with our lives, but this is a reality for many of us that we need to confront even this morning, even within ourselves. Now the choice we have here is entirely ours, but the standout truth is that for the disciple of Jesus, there really is only one way to be great. So if you're trying it any other way, get ready to be disappointed. Our call is to be like our rabbi, to take the path of servanthood. It is, it's not negotiable. I mentioned it earlier, it's just not, even though we like to presume that it is. It's not an option if we truly want to identify, as Jesus says, with his suffering, with his death, his life, and his resurrection. Some of you don't have resurrection life because you haven't identified first with his death. You can't experience the power of the Spirit aside from it, but we fool ourselves by having experiences here and there, getting this podcast, that podcast, getting fat with the things of the kingdom of God and yet fail to move into the realities of those things and experience them for ourselves. We're feasting on other people's death and resurrection, and it is subpar at best. It is a lie and an illusion. It is only giving you part of what you're supposed to experience in the kingdom of God, and not just experience, but know. So, what do we do? What do we do if the truth is the cross without death is just easy religion? What do we do? We have to make some choices. And I think the invitation to servanthood in our text here affords us this liberty, and it's what I'm calling decided servanthood. So if we're really going to do this, if we're really going to try to wrestle through what this means, it's going to be a decision that we make. It's going to be a choice, rather, that we make. Put another way, it's going to be a space for us to decide in our hearts that this is the path we're going to take. Often we think leadership and servanthood is a byproduct or gift we receive upon following Jesus. My friends, it is not. Trust me, you need only to take one look at our volunteer rosters. And I'm being cute, but I'm also not being cute. And I'm not trying to be unkind or unloving. I'm really not. I'm trying to appeal to you as a sister in the Lord. How many of us are really serving? Serving. Not just doing the things that move us in the moment that we're compelled by on Instagram or that we feel is what we should do. How many of us are really serving? And if it's not here, if it's not in your church, then where is it that you are serving? When it comes to servanthood, we have to choose it. Not once on a sign-up form, but daily in our big and our small moments over long periods of time. We'll deliberately choose to put others' needs before ours, on a big scale and a small scale. We will choose to move beyond the pain and discomfort or sacrifice of time and energy for the greater good of others. We will go the extra mile. We will show up to community because it's not just about how I feel, but about the good of everyone there, about serving them, not just being served. We will do the thing we said we would do even after a long or hard week. We will go and drop off food and pick up kids and babysit and check in and listen even when we don't want to. Servanthood is not something that will happen to us despite what culture and Instagram is telling you that we're just going to stumble upon it after years of following Jesus and studying theology. It is not so. It is something you choose from day one. And it's not produced in you any other way. The choice is what makes it servanthood. Are you with me? The choice is where you posture your heart and your heart is changed according to the will and the heart of the Father. The choice is where we, like Jesus, die so that we can live, really live, and not just for ourselves, but for others. It is a choice, and it is worth making. Next, servanthood. Decided servanthood is a discipline we develop. When it comes to servanthood, there are very few manuals and formulas, despite what you're reading out there or trying to find a read. But there is a consensus that it is something that we are continually learning how to do. What I mean is just like any other discipline, we choose to do it, and then we choose to figure out what that actually means for us, how that actually changes our lives. The call in discipleship is to go low, and then it's to go lower still. There is not a stopping point. There is no quota that gets filled, and then you're you know, earning the servanthood badge, and you're done. It's a lifelong call, and one that will need developing in and out of season, for me, servanthood has taken many forms. Yes, I serve the church through teaching and writing and counseling, but if I'm honest, a lot of that is easier for me. It's not easy, easy, but it's easier for me. What isn't easy is staying up late and stacking chairs. What doesn't feel natural is lingering in long conversations at the end of a very long workday and listening to someone when all I want to do is go to bed. It isn't easy to actively bless and pray for and love and demonstrate kindness to those who are unkind and ungenerous to me, even in my sacrifice. It isn't easy to bless those who send unforgiving and unloving emails. But it is the discipline over and over again. It is the discipline we confront within ourselves, and in it we look at what is weak within us, What is most rubbed by the call? And then we exercise our sacrifice anyway. Yes, you're going to feel confronted in your servanthood. It is not going to be fun. It's going to feel like someone's just kind of holding their hand to your fist, and you're like, this isn't great. Not what I want. I'm all for physical touch, but that's not it. Right? It's going to stay on you. And at the same time, you're going to keep moving towards them, even when there's resistance because it's a discipline, I'm going to exercise it anyway until it becomes a part of who I am and what I do without having to deliberately choose it. This is a discipline we have to exercise as apprentices of Jesus that we rarely talk about. It's something we need to be formed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus and it does not happen unless we keep doing it over and over again in and out of season. No, it doesn't have to look the same way every season, but it certainly has to exist in every single one. So, our job is to seek out what that means for us as disciples. Finally, decided servanthood is a commitment we pursue. It's, uh, it's a lifestyle that we live. It's not meeting an immediate need or volunteering for a certain position Servanthood is actually a disposition of the heart, and it is one that is rooted in commitment. It's not an affinity. It never will be. It is a committed and decided reality within yourself. Leadership and servanthood is not easy. It really isn't. What is seen most of the time is the glory of it, but the glory is nothing if not born of sacrifice and death servanthood. Make no mistake, as we see it in Jesus' life, it's true for us as well. It will cost you your life in no uncertain terms. You will be humiliated over and over again for the sake of others and for the glory of God. That is the way of discipleship. It is the way of service in the kingdom of God. And if you're not committed to it, you will bail at some point. Every good leader you love and respect, just think of one right now. kind of a joke. I know you're like, get her off. (laughs) Every good leader you love and respect, the Gerald's of the world, the John Mark's of the world, these people that you adore have wanted out at some point. They have wanted to take, I'm not trying to speak for you, Gerald, but I'm making big assumptions that I think are accurate. We've all wanted to take the road of ease, of self pleasure and protection. And if not, for the commitment that we make day in and day out. If not for that deep yes that was given and that we gave to Jesus when we committed our lives to him, we would be out and you would not know these people that you love. If we want to be servants, we will have to be committed and pursue that commitment day in and day out to resolve in our hearts that this is the way we will walk no matter the days ahead. Now, Jesus' declaration at the end of our text is not simply a doctrine of salvation. It is an active model for Christian living. It is the invitation to the good life, if we'll only follow. As I thought about this text this week, I've been thinking a lot about those people in my life who I would call true servants, and I'm really, really proud and humbled to say that when I think of servanthood, when two of the first... People I think of are my dad and my mom. I have images of them staying late at church or taking people home that we, I wouldn't want them to. I see my parents uh, stacking chairs and vacuuming uh, Sunday school classrooms late into Saturday night with us eating oyster crackers on the floor and us just waiting you know, for the glory of God as children. I think of people like my sister and the women who fought for me when my world was falling apart as a teenager. And I think of the many men and women that I get to serve with here at Bridgedown, who lay down their lives for those that they love. Servanthood, as I have known it in my life, is true and real and deep. And it is through these people that I have known Jesus, that I have truly seen him for who he really is. But it is in following their footsteps that I have found him for myself. And that's the invitation for us today. We all have this desire deep within us, this ache, and I hear about it all the time. For more of Jesus, more of the Holy Spirit, more understanding of life in the kingdom. And alongside those come These also cries for authority and influence and all that. And trust me, I'm with you. This is not an indictment against anyone or anything. I very much understand the realities of those things. But in my heart, I often wonder why people aren't experiencing more of the glory of God in their life. And that's not, oh, I'm a big Christian. I'm a professional Christian, so I got it. No. I see God's miracles every week. I really do, it's not, and it's not because I'm a pastor. I just wonder, if in light of this passage for a lot of us, if the reason we're not encountering more of the Holy Spirit is because we're unwilling again to identify with His death. The only way I know Him is if I walk in the path that He walked. Week in and week out, when I'm counseling people, writing curriculum, writing teachings, I'm encountering the presence of God going, this is difficult, I don't like this, something in me is dying, I don't feel loved, I don't feel cared for, I don't feel celebrated, I don't feel in, feel in the blank. But at the same time, I see God's spirit at work setting people free, delivering them from demons, healing their bodies, healing their souls, healing their minds, and I can't help but go, this is the glory and the goodness of God. We have to identify with him, we have to put ourselves in the path of other people and say, I'm a servant to you, I'm a slave to you, for and unto the glory of God and when they cross that threshold of salvation that's when you go this is what it's about yeah. this is why I'm here this is my holy spirit big church experience moment that's it on the floor of your bedroom or whatever it may be where you're telling someone that Jesus is better than he seems to be and they believe it that's your encounter with the living God We're a generation that is seeking experience after experience after experience, and I'm telling you, I think the only way we're really gonna get what we're after is if we follow this man that we love and actually do what he did. There's so much more for us. If we'll just step out, if we'll just say once and for all, this is it, this is death, it's a commitment I'm making, it's servanthood to the people of God, to the family of God, to the glory of Jesus. There is so much for us in there. There's so much in us that needs to be rubbed away. And some of us just need a good old year of just servanthood. And myself very much included. Amen? I mean, come on. Y'all are nubby. You got rough edges. Trust me. It's been a year. Same for me. This is how God is at work in us. And my appeal church, Bridgetown Church, is that we'd really think about this and move beyond thinking to just saying today to Jesus, yeah, amen, because I want more of you, because I want more of you.